Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 44, our look at screening T2D patients and ways that MASH differs in women versus men and among women based on menopausal status. Plus, from the vault, a conversation from 2023 about different primary care screening strategies for MASH. This conversation starts with Jorn Schottenberg returning to a key point in Roberta Forlano's paper, the 38% false negative rate for FIB4 screening. Jorn notes that while this feels like a high rate for false negatives, it might not present as much of a diagnostic challenge if treaters repeat their screening every two to three years. Roberta agrees and notes how remarkably cost-effective this screening strategy and, in fact, every strategy she tested is, even in an environment with no approved drugs for MASH. Louise Campbell notes that the false negative rate for ELF was far higher, which Roberta attributes to the test thresholds which were set for severe disease. She suggests that if ELF is to be used in these situations, the cutoffs need to be far lower. From there, the group dives into several issues in the paper, the value of BCTE and diagnostics, the common theme that most patients were of lower socioeconomic status, and the idea that simple ultrasound produced reasonably reliable results. This last point matters tremendously because primary care clinics throughout the world are more likely to have access to ultrasound than BCTE, and in some countries, Australia for example, ultrasound is the only imaging technique reimbursed by the healthcare system. Coming out of this session, I understood why Louise had advocated to bring Roberta Forlano and her work on the podcast. You'll hear some fascinating data, a data you can use, about some of our core target populations. It's a lot of information in a fairly short episode, so just sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. Missing 30% with FIB4 is, of course, unfortunate. But if you think about that these people are being retested in two or three years, and you might pick them up, particularly at the same age, I think if you want to really emphasize cost effectiveness, maybe that isn't such a bad strategy and it could be one way forward. So I'm not sure you have a thought about that because, you know, typically this is cross-sectional. You miss some. They're coming back in clinical practice. So you might have more time. Roberta Forlano. I totally agree. I mean, I'm not a, a very big fan of FIB4, to be honest, especially after this study. But still, I think it's a good screening strategy. It's very easy to calculate clinicians, even though sometimes AST is not easy to get in primary care, but um, still is very intuitive, very easy. It's easy also to uh, integrate in the GP medical record so that it flags up automatically. And yes, of course, uh, with the advice to retest it after three years, you will pick up the patients based on age anyway. So yes, I think it's still a very good uh, screening strategy and it's very much cost effective. I mean, if you think at the threshold we use in the UK of £20,000, per quality gain for quality of life gained. All screening strategies were around 2,000. So they were not only cost effective, but very cost effective. So this needs to be taken into account, I think. Louise Campbell. Although the false negatives were 38% from FIB4, they were 54% from ELF. Do you think that was age related or do you think there was something else given that that's quite high? Yes, I don't have an answer for that. We did look into it as we found out that those missed by FIB4 were younger and with normal LFTs tended to be with normal LFTs. For health, we couldn't find any any common patterns among those who were missed with health by health. So I don't really have an answer to that question. Probably my feeling is that we might need lower cutoff for health in primary care. So we might need to test lower cutoff. Perhaps the the ones we have come from biopsy cohort and cirrhotic cohorts, or perhaps they are too 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 high to pick up patients in primary care. Jörn Schattenberg. Uh, That's a very important comment. I think it's exactly what's going on. You have a different free test probability there 
there. And I think it's important you refine the target population according to your local practice, you know, age and, and comorbidities. So it might be difficult to have it across all countries, uh, even, you know, throughout Europe, it's going to be different. So there might be room and reasoning for adjusting based on the referral rate, the detection rate and capturing that data moving forward. It would be very helpful, in particular in a system such as NICE, where this is very structured. Uh, if I'm looking at my system, there is no such structure implemented, which gives a little bit more flexibility to the individual physician. But again, then the cost effectiveness analyses and the type of referral patterns you get is not as structured. So there's pros and cons to all ways, I guess. I think also one thing that is very important for screening strategies for NAFLD, I mean, it has to take into account local resources and uh, local practice, uh, clinical practice and GPs. There's not going to be a universal perfect one, but it, it will need to be adjusted based on the, on the local resources, definitely system, uh, healthcare system and everything. This might be in the paper and I might have missed it or it might not be in the paper because it's kind of a weird kind of question in some ways. You could probably take the FIB4 false negative rate way down if instead of that you did FAST, fiber scan AST. We'll probably get a meaningfully lower false negative rate. And if I understand the, the quality numbers here, the, the, these numbers are so cost effective that that would probably, I'm certain, come out to be cost effective as well. However, as Jorn points out and as you point out, not viable in every practice in every region and maybe not of equal value to every patient. Are there patient subgroups based on things like demographics or circumference or age or gender where you believe it might make more sense if you got a uh, negative score to think about using FAST as a backup, uh, adding a fiber scan as a backup against that? I mean, uh, Ian Rowe was on, what, a year and a half ago, maybe, last summer with a paper that said that it was a more cost-effective study to do a test for everybody who met certain criteria that had a fiber scan in it than to use the iLift uh, lift approach. So I'm just wondering. Yes, that's a very good point. When we looked at all the factors associated with the fibrosis in this population, one of the things that came up was low socioeconomic status very, very clearly. So and this is something we will move forward in other studies. But I think in that sense, it would be good to target that population in particular with a fiber scan or, or you know, the more, more effective screening strategies. But targeting that population within the type 2 diabetes, it might be particularly worth from a clinical point of view. Is, is that based on frequency or based on false negative? No, based on frequency, not on false negative. That makes all the sense of the world. I was trying to figure out listening why that would have a higher rate of false negatives and I couldn't see that, but frequency, that certainly makes sense. I've got a question. When you talk about the lower socioeconomic, was that also the biggest group with the lower educational level? Because you found that that was associated with NAFLD in that population. And I had two questions in relation to that. Was it the background educational level of where they'd come from and to the level of which they've been educated? And also how the impact of education within the healthcare system affected that population because they've been in diabetes care and diabetes educators for a number of years and whether or not that came into the study at all. The way we analyzed education status was basically there's an index in the UK. It's called the Index of Multiple Deprivation, which is something that is calculated every year for the for each neighborhood, but um, on a building level, no, not a neighborhood like a, a massive area. So it's more like a an, an local or environmental estimation. It doesn't really reflect the single patient length of education, or unfortunately, because we didn't have that data. But it's really interesting. And since we're following up all these patients for 10 years, our yearly with fiber scan and ultrasound and, uh, and blood tests for um, 10 years, so we are collecting back all the information on all these specifications on education or their income, their employment and access to healthcare system, barriers to healthcare. So we will probably be able to know more about that when we will 
reanalyze the data. But um, at the moment, it was just a surrogate estimation of the education level, but still was very, very significant. I'm thinking one would assume that since education and SES tend to correlate anyway. Yes. I mean, and all, all, all the NCDs, actually, all the non-communicable diseases have, you know, association with socioeconomic status um, because it's entangled with the quality of diet and be compliance with medications, medical appointments and self-awareness, health awareness. So it's very well known for all the others non-communicable disease. So I'm not surprised it came up for Napoldi as well. I'm thinking about the whole general social determinants of health idea. And obviously all, the, all those things roll together. I'm wondering, other than education, is there any variable that you have observed or you observed in other studies within the cluster of things that fall to low socioeconomic status that tend to have a greater impact? This was the main one I analyzed. But given you know the signal we found from this study, we will definitely look more into it in more details with a uh, dedicated study. There was one little bit of data that did interest me. It was your ultrasound um, level of steatosis. Wasn't that different to the steatosis levels picked up on CAP? And some t- and often CAP is more sensitive. And I wondered whether there was an explanation for that, or is it the fact that the majority had high steatosis levels? And the other thing is, I didn't know what the cutoff was for the steatosis grading, whether you started at 248 or whether or not you started at 280. Actually, we chose the 260 based on the 2021 ESOL guidelines. So we chose the 260 cutoff for CAP. And yes, we were surprised of these results as well. We were expecting a higher prevalence with CAP score. But yes, I think your guess was right. Probably most of them had moderate to severe steatosis. So it was picked up by both investigations. We didn't have many with the mild steatosis, which could have been where you could have different results with two. That's interesting. You wouldn't think of ultrasound as being a first-line screen and nobody uses it that way. But Okay, so the metaphor I used when I, we were talking about this a little bit before and we looked at the FIB4 score and how inexpensive it is with the level of false negatives is that it's a little bit like buying an inexpensive car, but it doesn't run as long or it doesn't run as well or it doesn't get either as fast. Now, if all you need to do is go to the market and buy food once a week, then an inexpensive car that doesn't run that well is probably good enough. If you're commuting 100 kilometers each way to work every day, that's going to be a whole different kind of problem. Does that suggest that there is an environment in which ultrasound probably is a reasonable first line thing to do if you don't have fiber scan available to you? Or am I reaching too far here? When we chose the pathways to compare to standard of care, we chose ultrasound plus abnormal LFTs because this is one of the things that GPs in the UK, the GP do when there's an abnormal liver function test to investigate in general, not for, for fatty liver, but for all causes of liver disease. So it's still one of the first line investigations in patients with liver disease in the UK. So it's very commonly used. Um, ultrasound is still very commonly used and it's part of these abnormal liver function test pathway. So it was just natural for us to, to include it as one of the uh, screening pathways. But again, uh, this came up from the um, environment where we were doing the study or the country, basically, where we were doing the studies. I think that there should be other countries in Europe where they do a lot of ultrasounds. I think in Italy, they would be the same. Ultras- they, they, I think they would start with uh, ultrasounds and liver function tests um, in a very similar way. But yes, we will need to uh, see their data as well. That approach is very feasible because it's something that physicians have been doing for the longest time and uh, they're ready to implement it, right? So um, I think we do have better tests today and that's something you're showing here too. But the reality is um, it's not available at all levels. So if we really want to make a difference for patients and take it out to the broad majority, this could be an approach, uh, very pragmatic. Um, And I think that's what the guidelines say. Identify fatty liver, test for abnormalities or metabolic risk factors and then risk stratify for fibrosis. And uh, and just to echo that, Australia 
year recently published the recommendations for their new NAFL guidelines and they are going to continue because they have no access to Fibroscan. It is not Medicare reciprocated with ultrasound and LFTs. Now that is 2023. So by the time that gets revisited, when access is given to Fibroscan, we are talking a number of years from now before they can change that option to the more latest tests that the rest of us use. So on one hand, I get to do Fibroscan. In the other hand, it will be ultrasound and LFTs will be the main leading recommendation for NAFL guidelines in Australia, if ratified. Yes, ultrasound is very liked in a sense. They are very uh, keen, the, the GP are very keen to do ultrasound, but it's also an important inter inter-observer variability. So different operators doing the same ultrasound to the same patients may not see the same features, which may be part of the risk stratification. So I don't think it will happen at the same frequency with fibroscan. It can't really happen with for an alpha fibrosis score. They are perfectly reproducible. So this is another thing that should be taken into account. In my study, I was the only one doing the ultrasound. So it was a single operator ultrasound. So this is another thing to take into account when we um, interpret those data. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded the conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with more individual interviews. We're still lining these up, but likely topics might include the impact of the Hamas invasion on the Israeli medical system and or how U.S. payers are looking at the coming Nash prescribing patterns or maybe something else. We'll announce our subjects and topics early next week. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.